Can Jordan Clarkson be fill in the blank? I will. Just a moment. Plus, Jake Fisher, Bleacher Report, talking about front offices, roster building. We wrote a book about it, Built to Lose. You should check it out. But we talked to him about it here on Round Ball Roundup on utahjazz.com. I'm J.P. Chunga on the Utah Jazz Podcast Network, presented by First Colony Mortgage, the official mortgage lender of the Utah Jazz, and MLS 3112, Equal Housing Lender. Jordan Clarkson and Clay Thompson. Hold on. Don't skip ahead to the interview just yet. Stay with me. Not the same player, but Jordan Clarkson can have a similar impact to what Clay Thompson has for the Warriors. And I say that knowing full well Clay Thompson is the same player that he was a couple years ago. You remember Clay. 20 point per game. He was the second best offensive player on that team, shooting amazingly from three. That's not what they need from Jordan Clarkson. They play different games. And him having a similar effect on the team, that's pie in the sky. That's best case scenario. But something that we talked about last week. And it comes off of the heels of Saturday when he goes for 45. And it was the most efficient night that he has ever had going plus 40. Catch a stat line. 45 points, 15 of 21, 7 of 13 from 3. And he's actually gone over 40 twice with the Jazz. Uh, once previously with the Cavs, and that was his big 42-point night, but he took 34 shots. He made 7 of 17 from 3. Last year, he goes for 41 against Golden State, took 33 shots, 5 of 16 from 3, and then the game against Philly actually was pretty efficient. 40, but 13 of 20 from the field, and 8 of 13 from deep. It's a credit to Jordan. He transformed his game. Started when it was under John Beeline, right before his trade, taking threes, going to the rim, eliminating that mid-range stuff, and then it's only been more pronounced because he got on a team where that's exactly what they want him to do. That is the system. That's how they're built to play. And he fits in, and he has a lot of leash to go do things. Consider his numbers since the Joe Ingles injury. It's been 15 games. He's averaged 17.4 points on 47% shooting, 30% from deep, 92% from the free throw line. His effective field goal percentage is 54.7, better than those raw numbers. That's the number to keep an eye on because it accounts for how many three-point attempts. So he's been pretty effective. And catch that off the heels of what Clay Thompson did against the Bucs. Since I started questioning, hey, Clay hasn't been playing so well, put up a 20-point night, put up that 38 against Milwaukee, and he did it in the exact form that they needed. Because they were guarding Steph all over the court, face guarding him. It was silly how far they were going out to make sure Steph didn't get up shots. And he didn't. He only got seven. But that leaves opportunities for Clay, And he was going 4v4 at a defense because they completely tried to eliminate Curry. And he was able to dribble to the nail, get a mid-range jumper, and score. Because that's what's going to happen in the playoffs. When your number one gets bottled, you have to have somebody else who could step up and score. And the Warriors right now are built around Curry, and then they have Jordan Poole, Andrew Wiggins, Clay Thompson in the 17-point-per-game range. When they were at their peak, Clay was averaging 20. They also had Kevin Durant and Draymond Green, to which their season starts right back up with Draymond coming back. But now he's a 17-point-per-game scorer. And if that's the case, when Steph has these nights where he is bagged up, Clay can be there to take the scoring. He's doing it while shooting career lows. Just 37% for three. 
And this is all to say that if there's anyone in my mind on this Jazz team that could be a 20-point-per-game scorer, I could be the number two, it can be Jordan Clarkson. Boyan Bogdanovich does not get enough shots, doesn't have as much leash. Jordan Clarkson has those opportunities to be the guy. It's pretty funny because to be consistently that, taking one guy who has been so up and down, but he has a consistent mindset. And maybe you have a soft spot for J.C., who doesn't? He has the highlight real game of anybody on this team. Watching his game is so pure. It's fun. He's Jordan Clarkson. He's cool, objectively. Anybody that sees him knows he's legit. It can be frustrating, and he realizes when it's frustrating. See it in his body language. But I think to the question that Rob Perez asked last week, Jordan Clarkson, can he be the secondary scorer come playoff time? If he plays a fraction of the way he did Saturday, then maybe he just might be the guy. For authentic Utah Jazz player gear, including jerseys, shorts, warm-ups, and more, visit fanatics.com slash jazzgameused. That's fanatics.com slash jazzgameused. Five stars, nice reviews, all I ask of you. Let others know you're listening to the podcast. Jake Fisher, author of Built to Lose, and he works at Bleacher Report, writes there. He was all on top of the trade deadline. I want to get into a little bit of way-too-early offseason. And front office geekery because that's where he has his sources and that's where he knows the game. So let's step up into the boardroom, hear how it all functions with Jake Fisher of Bleacher Report. Typically, from my experience, you know, you start to get the early rumblings of what teams are looking to do in the trade window early December and the lead up to that December 15th trigger date, right? When a lot of contracts that were signed in that offseason uh, start to become available to be dealt. And there's not much intel out there. It's usually like pretty vague and nebulous at that point of time. But one thing that was there from the beginning was the Jazz were looking for wing help. And that was consistent throughout, you know, the whole three month trade window there up until February 10th. And I mean, Jeremy Grant was, I think, the name that was at the top of the Jazz's list from the get go. But clearly they didn't want to move him at this deadline, being that they didn't think any deal was commensurate necessarily with um, how they value him. I think also you can still trade Jeremy Grant anytime between now and July 1 and the Pistons can look at how the lottery unfolds for one, how the the rest of the draft order unfolds uh, for two and to figure out exactly where the the same offers that were there are pretty much going to be there come draft time. So I think pretty quick, I mean, the jazz were holding on to a little bit of hope. I think that Jeremy would, would be, you know, the asking price might get dropped or whatever, but I think they moved on pretty quickly from that regard. And then Harrison Barnes's name came up a lot. Um, you know, there was some Marcus Smart talk that came up, but once Joe got hurt, that A, I think made it a lot easier for the Jazz to move in because obviously anyone who follows the team closely, such as yourself, fans, you know, they'll know that not only was he an integral piece of that team offensively, but just a, a pretty well-regarded guy around the league, locker and presence, cultural, you know, fabric of that team. Moving him in general, I think that's why I didn't move him. Like he, 
this this defensive wing, you know, trade concept has been talked about with Utah, and I think has been something they've been looking at dating back to last year's draft. Um, but a lot of the talk then was like, do do they really want to move on from someone like Joe, who's been just a, a key part of that team? So when he got hurt, I think it did two things. It lowered the value of what he could ultimately get back for it for them, but also increased the like to me the second the second his he tore his ACL right not his Achilles it was an ACL ACL yeah the second he tore his ACL like that was that was when he was definitively going to get moved um because he became an expiring contract like you mentioned not just Joe Ingles on an expiring deal he was just straight up an expiring deal so it it further lubricated a deal happening but it also lowered the ceiling so for them to get someone like Nikhil alexander walker back ultimately for that contract like when you looked at the jeremy grant um trade conversations which is why i started off with that also like they didn't have a young piece like the pistons apparently were looking for two first rounders and a young guy or something equivalent like that and you look at the jazz's roster they just don't have that blue chip young prospect to go and get somebody or just to have developing on a rookie deal while you're paying multiple guys, 30 plus million dollars a year. So regardless of what Nikhil's like actual impact can be right now, I do think, and I was just talking to someone on the phone yesterday who was criticizing Portland for giving up Nikhil that easily in that situation. So I think ultimately if you were looking for wing help to, to bring this rambling answer to a close and maybe the better options that you originally had your site set on the Harrison Barnes's of the world weren't necessarily available for the price that you're willing to pay um, to go get someone like Nikhil who actually adds a younger piece that you can grow and develop and maybe flip into something later or just have in your program. I thought that was a win. What is Detroit doing? Because I find them very puzzling in, in the way that they've drafted the way that they have so many bigs on that roster to where, now they're starting to think, what do we do with Jeremy Grant? What is their outlook when it comes to this offseason? I do think the Pistons are going to operate trying to get to the playoffs next season. That seems to be their goal. They don't want to be – I mean, no one wants to be – unless you're the Thunder, no one wants to be rebuilding and tanking year after year after year after year. And the Thunder are even doing it under the – premise of eventually getting back to where they were but i think they're they're being patient about it right um so troy weaver is the general manager in detroit um i mean there's definitely um some talk out there about internal struggles between him and arntellum and other figures atop the front that front office but troy comes from okc so the patience is one thing that i think obviously relates and translates um you mentioned bigs. I mean, having long rangey athletes who can guard across multiple positions, that that's a, an OKC staple as well. Um, but I think to, to Jeremy in this whole equation of trying to get better, like I think they would like to keep him if, if it works out. I think he'd like to stay there if it worked out. But I also think he clearly wants to explore competing at a high level like he was doing in Denver. I think Portland is very interesting to him, just like I think Portland is very interested in Jeremy Grant. Um, but also, I mean, think about it this way. The Pistons just stole Jeremy in for agency from Denver. And if they're able to flip him into anything, that's a win for the Pistons, being right. that Jeremy could theoretically be like the David West to Paul George's Pacers, that like veteran presence as this team is coming up. But 
he doesn't fit the timeline of Cade Cunningham or Hamidou Diallo or Sadiq Bey or any of those guys. Um, so if you can use a guy that you basically got for free, like you paid him a lot of money, but in terms of the asset game, you know, they didn't give up any capital, any picks, any young players. They just signed him outright to turn him into, I, I think, from my understanding, I think the Pistons' dream scenario at the deadline was to have potentially gotten Patrick Williams from Chicago, who is someone that the Pistons were purportedly very high on back in that 2020 draft. So if you're able to turn Jeremy Grant into someone like that, that'd be a big win, I think, for them. But ultimately, I think if he is that veteran presence um, that you know is a two-way guy and it helps raise the ceiling for the young guys, I think the Pistons are okay with that too. So I think they're kind of just assessing all of their options here. What is the front office view of the Jazz? As they already have Justin Zanuck in place, midseason they bring in Danny Ainge, who has a reputation of his own. There's great information in your book, Built to Lose, about Danny Ainge. What does he bring to this team when it comes to looking towards this offseason, even what he did at the trade dip? I'm not in the room, right? So I can only go based off of what I hear. And there is some type of, not dispute, but not everyone in the league says the same thing about how the jazz are being operated. There are some people who say that Danny is on the golf course every day and he just takes phone calls and that's really it. But, and then there are people who are like, no, Danny Ainge is on the table is is standing on a table, pounding his fist, like arguing, you know, we got to do this. We got to do that. The truth is somewhere in between. He's definitely around and in meetings and, talking to lower level staffers, you know? Um, but I think he's not, I, I, I think ultimately the Jazz's number one goal right now from my understanding is they want to try to build a sustainable championship contender around Donovan Mitchell. I think ultimately that's going to continue to be, um, you know, their, their North star, but for, for what Danny Ainge does differently, I mean, there's definitely a lot, Mark Stein wrote about it um, over the weekend. I mean, there's definitely growing rumblings, let's say, about Quinn Snyder's future there. Um, so if that if that situation were to unfold, I think Danny would clearly have a lot of influence on who that head coach would be. Um, you know, in terms of the, the Justin Zanuck relationship, I mean, the Jazz have done a pretty – I mean, people around the league definitely viewed the job that – Zanuck did as pretty exemplary. Um, I don't think people viewed him as being bad in that number one spot at all. Um, there just is an increasing trend around the league. Like I wrote this in this Lakers story I did a week or two ago. Like the, 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 it wasn't just the jazz with Danny, the Sixers hired Dale Morey over Elton Brand. There's talks all over the place about Minnesota potentially hiring someone over Sach and Gupta in Minnesota. Um, so I think it's, you know, more big picture strategy, um, you know, cognoscenti type stuff is what Danny Ainge is in place for. I still think the day-to-day stuff, Justin Zanuck's running that team. Now, let me tell you about First Colony Mortgage. They've been serving the lending needs of Utah for more than 35 years. As a mortgage banker, First Colony Mortgage offers advantages over other lenders, Not only do they process mortgages, they also underwrite, fund, and close mortgage loans all in-house. Their expert team is ready to help you with your home financing needs. Just check them out. First Colony Mortgage, the official mortgage lender of the Utah Jets. 
what's the biggest shoe left to drop when it comes to this offseason? I, I think it's Bradley Beal. Um, he has said publicly that he's leaning towards uh, re-signing. That's always been, I think, the Bradley Beal word that, that he doesn't want to be the quote-unquote bad guy. He, he also that, that leaves the team that drafted him. Um, I think also, you know, he wants to have some Dirk Nowitzki-like career, allegedly, where, you know, he wins one for the franchise that that he played for, you know, his whole career. And maybe it didn't come in year eight, but maybe comes in year 15, something along those lines. I mean, I think Dirk's came in like year 10. Um, but, you know, um, there's still a lot of talk that that, that situation isn't a shut and door uh dynamic and i mean the suitors will be out there i mean people always link him to golden state boston philly and miami i'm not saying that that's the proverbial list he wants to go to but those are the teams that keep getting mentioned the most um and honestly now there isn't even if he does resign six around in washington those teams and, and the teams that really are interested in him They'll continue to, to circle it and monitor it because he can always request a trade just like any of these guys have. So um, he's the next name that I think people are really keyed in on. I mean, the Damian Lillard dynamic, I think, will be interesting to pay attention to. But, I mean, to, to loop this back to Jeremy Grant stuff, like the Blazers have big plans to surround Dame with a lot of talent and try to kind of rebuild this thing on the fly kind of do a quick makeover and get him back into a real postseason opportunity. And he doesn't, by all accounts, he does not want to leave Portland. I think people around Dame are interested in him going elsewhere, but I, I, yeah, the, the, it's from a, from a player movement standpoint, those are the two names at the top of everybody's list in terms of like a team side of things. I, I'm very curious to see what Memphis does being that they're going to have three first-round picks here and they've got a window where they're obviously very, very good right now. Um, they can't just draft three. Like, what's, what is having three first-rounders on their team really do for them, right? So they clearly have a, the deck uh, shuffled to make a really big move if they want, just a matter of what that move's going to be. Well, and that leads towards sort of roster construction, how things get done, and your book, Built to Lose, because for so long, at least in the latest decade, it's been this tear it down, build it back up. And and you had the, the front row seat with Philly, with what they were able to do in trusting the process and, and seeing how they could get things done. When you viewed writing this book, taking yourself back into that, that mode, what keyed you in on? What drew you towards seeing that a bunch of these teams are, are doing this right now? Mm -hmm. What if I did the reporting, the, the legwork to make this an entire book? Well, I'm from Philly originally, and I was covering that Sixers team under St. Hankey for Liberty Ballers, the SB Nation blog. Um, and I interned at Slam Magazine after my freshman year of college at Northeastern. And then I was in Boston for those next three years of school um, with a Slam credential around my neck going to Celtics games. And people forget that the Celtics traded KG and Paul Pierce to Brooklyn on draft night 2013, the same night that Hinky traded Drew Holiday to New Orleans and started the process. And, you know, you, you look, you peel back the layer a little bit further, like the Sixers and Celtics 
played against each other in that 2011-2012 semifinals, which after the Sixers lost, um, that linked them to Orlando and the Lakers. And um, with that Dwight Howard-Andrew Bynum trade, and both Orlando and, and Los Angeles were pretty bad during those years as well. Steve Nash and the, and the Suns trade to that Lakers team to try to make the seven. Uh, this is going to be fun. SI cover Lakers, you know, that, that put the Suns into that, that tanking uh, realm. And, you know, the draft wasn't really being covered like it is now. Like there, there wasn't this whole draft Twitter economy out there. There really weren't that many people looking at it from a perspective outside of like Chad Ford and draft express. That's how I kind of got my start in reporting and, and developing contacts in the league. I was interning at slam and I was just going on draft express and uh, seeing who was projected to be like 15 to 40. And I was just, I was just contacting the agents of those players and saying, you know, I'm at slam. Like it's kind of a plat- big platform, you know, if you want, uh, a pretty good, um, you know, story about some draft prospect who's not getting enough attention. You know, I'll give you that attention. And um, I think the next year, like it became very clear to me that 2014 draft, everyone was looking at as the next version of the 2003 class, um, the LeBron Wade Bosch Carmelo draft, which I mean, LeBron Wade and Bosch were winning the title in Miami as that, you know, time period was going on and they're playing against, um, the OKC Thunder who got James Harden, KD, and Russell Westbrook in three straight drafts. So it became pretty clear to a lot of these teams that like the best way to get these stars is through the draft. And this 2014 class is supposed to be full of all, I mean, Andrew Wiggins was bigger than God, honestly, when he was at Kansas, Jabari Parker was considered to be, you know, some cross between Paul Pierce and Carmelo Anthony and Julius Randle was in there too. And Aaron Gordon was whatever. So, um, it just felt like a huge moment that I was, that I was in, 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 in the present, like in 2014. Um, and as I continued to m- move throughout my career, you know, team building and roster construction was something that I always paid attention to because I was start, I started out my career looking at it through that lens. So I couldn't really escape it. And I was looking for a bigger project outside of my, then I was at sports illustrated outside of those responsibilities. And it just kind of all came together. Has it gotten worse? Has it or has it just changed? Because I see I, I just look at the Rockets and their their sitting wall. It's pretty brazen now in respects to when it was uh at least a couple of years ago where just players were getting opportunities that maybe they would have never gotten. I guess you've gotten a little bit of this out of COVID, but actively sitting players, Al Horford when it came to the the Thunder, those type of instances, has it gotten even more so towards this type of roster construction? Um, I don't know if tanking is more widespread than it was then. Um, but to your point, I mean, clearly teams are doing it, I think, to a more aggressively brazen way where the Thunder are sitting Al Horford for half of the season last year and um, John Wall is just not playing for the Rock. That, that wasn't happening. In Philly. I mean, Philly was – fielding rosters that were completely un, uncompetitive. But someone today I was talking to in the film is criticizing the Thunder for not doing what the Sixers were doing and saying that the Thunder aren't trying to find, you know, Robert Covington's and TJ McConnell's. They're just kind of drafting these uh, first rounders and 
sticking with it. Um, I mean, I, that, again, that was one person's critique, not mine. Um, but no, I think ultimately the with the way that the draft lottery odds were changed because of this time period, it's it is far more difficult to just lose games and get the number one pick. Um, but because there is a wider range of outcomes now, there's greater benefit to being like the sixth worst, like for Portland to do what they did midseason, you know, it, it, and Indiana, for example, as well, the new draft structure benefits those teams, the teams that aren't the Orlando's and the Detroit's and the Houston's who are tanking all year long. It benefits the teams who decide to pull the plug halfway through the year. Cause look at what the very first year that 2019 draft lottery, when those rules were in place, the Pelicans sat Anthony Davis down the stretch because they didn't want him to get hurt. The Grizzlies traded um, Marcus all and they sat Mike Conley for that for the, the second half of the year. And who got one and two? The Pelicans and the Grizzlies. That's from seven and six. And they got, I mean, Zion, you know, the jury's still out, but John Morant is everything for Memphis right now. So, yes, I think teams are going to continue to tank as long as there's some type of record input on that draft order. Well, and the ways to at least try to combat it have been around since that time when you were covering it. I'm sure the play-in was an idea at that time, and now it's impacting the way you're hearing teams view themselves at the trade deadline. Has that been the mm-hmm. case? The play-in tournament has had tremendous impact on the transaction game for sure, being that, you know, especially for, I mean, I think fans don't necessarily understand. This is something we talked about in the book. A lot, a lot of the calculus behind decision-making in the NBA is out of self-survival and preservation from the executives and the coaches that are holding these jobs. And, I mean, if you can all of a sudden just be the 10 seed and make the quote-unquote postseason and you made the postseason, that's, that's, that's all of a sudden a win now. Um, so it changes, you know, and we saw the Kings and the Pelicans kind of make these big buy now moves to try to get into the playing tournament that has worked out so far for New Orleans. It hasn't really for Sacramento, but I don't think either of those deals really would have gone down five years ago. I don't know if they would have. Um, like those were two of the bigger names, Sabonis and CJ McCollum, that got moved and they went to two pretty poor teams, um, standings wise. So, yeah, it's it's clearly impacted the deadline. Being also there's there's less sellers now than normal, being that a lot of teams still think that they I mean, the Pelicans could have been a seller in theory, um, but they went out and they bought the Kings as well. Like the Kings have been, you know, waffling on whether or not to trade Harrison Barnes for two years. Um, so it's definitely changed trade deadline activity. And it's also changed these like end of season benchmark barometers that teams are, are, are ultimately striving for. I brought it up before we got on, but my favorite story is Dell Demps learning how to swim from Brett Brown. Were there other ones like that that you were able to uncover during your research that didn't make the buck, didn't make the the cutting room floor uh, that were as interesting? Anything that's not in there, I haven't thought about in a long, long time. (laughs) That's all right. um, I did this fun thing. Um, I did like deleted scenes, quote unquote, in the Substack newsletter before it was coming out. Um, and one of them, if you just, if anyone's listening at this point and you want to Google built to lose deleted scenes, LeBron James, um, there, I've, I've had a couple of funny run-ins of LeBron in like formal media settings, but 
And I was, this was right before the pandemic hit. I was in the garden locker room and the Lakers had just played the Knicks and JaVale McGee was on the Lakers. He played like two games or one game for the Sixers in like 2015, 16. And I was trying to get him to remember something and he couldn't. So I, I usually go to question at that point. I ask people, all right, well, who are you closest with on that team? Cause if they say someone that I've already talked to, Maybe I've got a story from that person already that I can that I can bring up or something. And JaVale couldn't remember the name of, of one of one of his best friends on that team. And so LeBron was sitting two stalls over in the locker room. And LeBron's LeBron, right? Like we all know about his photographic memory, but LeBron really should, has no business to be concerned with the 28 players that were on this the 17 and 62 Sixers, right? But LeBron just starts listing off every single player on that team. Guys like Hollis Thompson and uh, Daniel Orton and like, you know, names that no offense to those players who are, I'm sure, very talented and making good money overseas somewhere. But you know, he, and I said to him, did you like, like, how do you remember all those guys? Like, I get it. You have a good memory. And he said, we played them four times. Like this, just a shrug. Like, of course I knew every player on that roster. So they had 20, I think they had 26 players on that team that year. And he knew off the top of his head, he named like five of them. So um, that was, that really blew me away. That really blew me away. Wow. And he's able to go that deep on a team mm -hmm. that he's not even on. Did eventually remember the person or? It was Jakar Samson. Yeah, it was Jakar Okay, there you go. Yeah. yeah. That's probably one of the better stories I've got. Well, it's like I said, a phenomenal book. Great read. Check it out. Built to Lose. Available wherever they are sold. He is Bleacher Report's Jake Fisher on utahjazz.com. Jake, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, JP. Thank you.